0: The first thing that they, they told me when I walked in was, We thought you weren't going to come. And the, the crazy thing that I remember is when I looked in their eyes, they were so used to being disappointed, to people telling them that they were going to do something and that it wasn't going to happen. And that really sat with me. Like, I was like, Oh shit, like they're really used to being given up on. Um, and I promised myself at that moment that if I do work with these guys, like they would never feel that way again from me.
1: That's right, I'm Matt Levinson, and my guest today has had a hand in so much that is good about music in this city right now. Sampa the Great, The Kid Leroy, Becca Hatch, One Four, you know, four totally different artists, all global stars or stars in the making. And you can see my guest today front and centre in the new Netflix doco on One Four as well as the band's manager. I started talking with Ricky Tech um, for a project I was working on around live music, And in that conversation, there was so much uh, that was kind of intriguing and interesting and loads of insights. And I just wanted to know more about how he got to the place that he's at right now. And that's what this podcast is all about. It's about talking to people who are making change, making things happen, and trying to sort of dig below the surface and find out how they got there, like what makes them tick. Ricky, thanks so much for um, just saying yes to doing this. Yeah, thank you, Matt. It's good to be here with you. I guess we're going to talk a lot about all the stuff you're doing now. You know, like we're right in the middle of just an immense moment in your career with this Netflix doco that has just come out. It's landed and it's, you know, uh, I guess accelerating a huge amount of cultural impact that's been underway for, for the last few years. We're in Marrickville. You can hear the Marrickville Atmos of the planes going a- across. Step back a few years. What was life like for you growing up? What kind of family did you come into? What kind of home life did you have?
0: Yeah, um, I grew up to two Indonesian immigrants uh, who met here in Australia. Um, My parents were coming to Australia. They came here in the the late 1960s, early 70s to look for a better life. Um, My dad had had friends who had moved over from Indonesia and found work in factories and stuff. And then my dad came here and I think the first place he moved to was Vaucluse, was Bondi, um, and my mom came because her brother had had come here and her sister had come here to possibly move. Um, my parents were both uh, quite religious people, like very active in the church. Um, my mom's my mom's dad was like in the military, so she was very strict with me, and like like we had routine, we had um, like rules and, and things like that. And my dad came from a very poor background so he was very conscious about uh, working hard saving money um, and I think um, they imparted some very um, strong values into me uh, my parents were very giving people being some of the first Indonesians here they were the first to to try and welcome new Indonesians here and uh, obviously being with the church they were very much about um, giving like very open arms I remember my 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 mom saying that like when we have people over at the house, um, it doesn't matter what is left in the fridge, put it all on the table. Like that's just the type of people that they were. And I, I think I, um, I followed in there. I, I, I learned that off them and, and, and started to incorporate that
1: into my own life. Were there all, always people around? Was it like that kind of social life?
0: I, I think so. Like Because we didn't have family, like we didn't have like relatives here our family was church like so like all the kids that I grew up in church became my extended brothers like the aunties and uncles I call them my aunties and uncles because they are my aunties and uncles like they were the what the family that
1: I knew um so I like you know when they say it takes a village uh yeah it takes a village (laughs) for a lot of people in music um growing up in the church is really important as well because music is part of the church life Mm. was that the same for you
0: yeah, that's that's how like I think I became I fell in love with music like my first love like, I can remember like that my own music was R and B but I can I know that that was directly influenced by my dad who loved country music and gospel um, and so I understand that those chord progressions made sense to me uh, growing up that was what I was familiar with and what I what I liked um, my dad was also a massive rock and roll fan like he wanted to name me Elvis Presley. I ended up getting named after Ricky Nelson. Um, so yeah, like it it was a huge influence on me.
1: I love the fact that, you know, now we think about rock and roll, country, R and B, and obviously R and B has evolved and mutated so much, but we think about them as entirely different things. But when you look back in the, you know, first half of the last century, those things were all just part of the same music, right? They all sort of were um, evolving together and um, you know there were obviously different cultural strands that took them in different directions but the they connections all come from are the, pretty powerful yeah, right they
0: all come from the same place which is black america yeah um so like you know whether it's house music whether from the blues it's, right from the blues 100 percent. so and jazz yeah yeah pretty much yeah i've always had a deep respect for like hip-hop hip-hop culture i think is what allowed me to understand the history of the music and where, where it was from and why it was so important to the people who made it at that time
1: you were growing up you know at that time around here in marrickville Mm -hmm. you know your dad had been in bondi you Mm. just were saying you know now we think of marrickville as i mean there's 100 breweries around here it's a pretty hip part of town Mm. bondi is a super exclusive part of sydney Mm. back then it was really different right like what was the marrickville like that you came up in
0: it was very, like, it, it, it was very working class. Um, my neighbors, I lived on Livingston Road. My neighbors were, like, an old Lebanese family. Next to, next, to, next to that was, like, another Lebanese family. And the family that lived in front of our house, our house was split into, he was an old war veteran, like, from the Vietnam War and Korean War. Like, it was just a mixture. It was just battlers. Like, it was really, like, it, Like we used to see Jeff Fennick walking down the street on Merrickville Road, yeah, I, mean, I just remember factories, like the back, the back alleys of factories were like, the back alleys of Marrickville were like factories and mechanics and then there's all these vagrants running around, there was like, it was pretty dark, like, I mean, you just walked through a new town, it was all gothic and there were squatters everywhere, it, it wasn't what we know it to be now, um, it, it felt kind of dangerous, like, but that, when I was a kid, that, that's kind of what we knew, like, it wasn't, we didn't know any differently.
1: Yeah, a few years later, you moved across to Canterbury, which is only a couple of suburbs mm. away. What was it like? Was that, did that feel like a big shift at that time? Yeah, I mean, like
0: when you're a kid, any move feels, feels big. Um, but I remember when I, got, when, I, when I was choosing high schools, uh, I went to Elwood Public and all my friends at that time were going to go to Kingsgrove North. And that was kind of like, that, yeah, that's where all my friends were going. I thought it was a popular school. But then, because I was living um, in Helston Park, they zoned me to in Canterbury, and Canterbury at that time was, I think, in primary school we were told it was one of one of the most dangerous schools. Like the first day at school, you're going to get your head dunked in the toilet. Like all the dangerous people that we knew from our area <laughs> went to that school, and I was I, I was scared when they told me I had to go to that school. Like I actually cried. Like I didn't I didn't want to go. But no, I like, I had a great time there. Like but yeah that. That was the reputation it had at that
1: time. Tell me about what you wanted, what your dreams were when you were going through there. You know, you wound up at Canterbury High, um, and by all accounts, you must have done really well there. You were the school captain, right? Yeah, I don't think I had a dream in high school. Like,
0: I wanted to be like I remember, like as a kid, I wanted to be my, I wanted to be like my dad, and my dad was a truck driver. So I thought, yeah, I want to be a truck driver. Like every kid just wants to be like their dad, right? So that was my. I think that was the first dream that I that I recollect. Canary Boys was interesting like I think we were like we were voted the the third most dangerous school in Sydney at that time and the other two schools were like one was in Cabra and the other one was Belmore Boys um and Belmore Boys like someone had set set their music teacher on fire there was like a stabbing or like you know a fight every week at that school and our school wasn't kind of like too dissimilar but I remember there was a teacher at There was a teacher that we had, our PE teacher, like Shane Millard, um, and he was married to a Fijian, a Fijian lady. So he had, like, he was a footy coach too. Like, he 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 coached St George uh, Jersey Flag. So he took a real affinity to to the Islander boys, like. And I think he was one of the 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 teacher that we went to when we didn't feel safe or feel confident in the other teachers. Yeah, PE being the, the 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 class in that you like you were having fun in that was different to every other class. He instilled a confidence in me one day because he I remember him telling like uh, uh, telling a bunch of people that I was I was going to be a leader one day. I was going to be someone that, you know, led led my year. This was in year 7 and this little, I was little Asian kid, really shy. And that really stuck with me. That that moment stuck with me in it's why I probably did end up becoming... It wasn't because I felt like I was the best to lead. It's because someone showed um, belief in me and that kind of stuck with my year.
1: Yeah, setting that expectation, like this is something that's real, that's, you know, you can actually imagine that happening.
0: Yeah, if someone says to you, like, yeah, I, I think you're... It's someone that is respected within the year and, you know, that you know your, your peers look to and respect and he says, oh, this person is going to be great one day that has a huge effect on a kid's um, psychology and what they believe of themselves. Um, and they, that, that really stuck with me. So like, I think maybe after that point, I kind of held myself as a leader unconsciously. Like I was maybe selective with my behavior, how like how I moved within different um, f- like friend groups or circles. Um, and yeah, becoming, becoming like, school captain it wasn't it wasn't an academic thing it was just my ability to uh relate to people or connect
1: with people did you ever get a chance to talk to that teacher and you know register
0: no i didn't he passed away like he passed away i think while i was in uni um and i never got to tell him i never got to tell him directly to his face like how much those simple words that he said that those years like meant to me and shaped me as a person. I remember when he passed, I left a message for his son just to, to tell his son that, that yeah, his dad,
1: his dad had a big impact on my life. You were, by that time you were studying at unit, you were at Macquarie studying business, tourism only a few years before your ambition had been like to be like your dad driving trucks. Mm. What shifted that? And why did you wind up going to that kind of that business degree? I remember in high
0: school, um, my sister, I have, a, I have a sister and she, well, she's a half sister, but like my sister, she lived in, in she grew up in, in Indonesia and one year she came to Sydney um, and at the time she was working for the Four Seasons in, in Jakarta, in Indonesia. So when she came, she got a free night to stay at a Four Seasons of her choice and we went to Canberra and we stayed at the Four Seasons or the the, the the region or the Hyatt. I can't remember which one it was, but. And I remember going into this like really opulent hotel and thinking, oh, fuck, I, I could do this. I could, I could, I could, I, I like this. I like the idea of this. And it was around probably like 94, 95. And then 96. Well, I think it was before that, but we found out that Sydney was getting the Olympics. And I was like, Oh yeah, I could see myself working in the Olympics. That's cool. That was a moment. And so I positioned myself as I'm going to go work in a hotel. I'm going to become the general manager of a hotel. um, And I'm going to work in this Olympics thing. And that's why I chose, it was hospitality management. It wasn't business at that time. It was, I'm going to go work in hotels like my sister. And then I kind of found out about the the business degree afterwards and thought I wasn't going to take it. Like I was just going to do the two-year diploma and then start working. Um, but my parents really wanted me to, to have a degree and that was sort of the first, um, the first thing that came to mind. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. Did it all come together once you came out with that degree? No, like I bombed that degree so badly. Like I think this is a problem that like maybe a lot of other Asian kids have or kids of immigrant parents is like, we go into education with the obligation to our parents first and foremost i wasn't I didn't know why why I was there. I didn't have a purpose. I just knew like I had to go to school I had to finish that I had to go get a degree because otherwise, how was I gonna get a job? even when I started working in hospitality, I'm like like why am I working so hard for minimum wage? like this sucks, I'm getting abused by people, like the work's so long, it's hard at shift work, I'm working like on weekends while my friends are partying like I didn't really like it to be honest, but looking at my parents as an example, like work wasn't something that you enjoyed. Work's something you enjoyed. Um, you just made a paycheck and went home. And I thought that's what I was meant to do.
1: When did that shift?
0: Well, after a few years of working in hotels, I got, I got kind of tired. Like my first, my first job was McDonald's. That was like 15 or 16 years old. And so I already understood what it was like to work in a kitchen or work in that environment. So the service industry is what they called it at that time. When I was working in hotels, I was like, oh, it's a nice event, like it's a nicer place to work. It's kind of fancier, but like I still felt like I was getting treated like shit. Um and so I quit that and I was like, oh, screw this, like I'm gonna go work in the corporate world. And so I remember getting a job in like um an like an IT like an IT distributor uh in like Banks Meadow, uh Express Data and I was doing like data entry work and stuff like that. And that sucked because, like, I was n- now trapped at a desk. Like, I didn't realize at that time that I probably had like ADD or something like that, but like, I couldn't sit at a desk and just tap away and bang away at a computer. Like, that was like hell to me. Um, so it, I was like super distracted at that. And then I tried a whole bunch of other stuff, like selling phones for like for I think it was three. I, I tried all these corporate jobs and it just, I, I couldn't find where I fit. Uh, I always felt like I was a misfit. I was like a, know not applying myself I was super distracted and then a friend of mine a friend of mine one day told me that um they were applying for for emirates for this for this uh, airline from Dubai as a flight attendant and at, at that time I'd quit like i I'd, I'd quit working I, I wasn't working for a year I was about twenty four like twenty three twenty four and I was really lost and I was like oh I'm gonna give that a crack like I think that's gonna be fun like it just seemed like I just, I just want to get out of the country. I wanted to like experience something new. And that was a sort of way to get to, um, to experience that. And I thought, look, I've got, a, I've got this hospitality diploma and a business degree. And I've worked in hotels for most of my life. This is like probably like the closest thing that I'm going to get to like doing something. And it was like really well paid too. It was like, holy shit, like they're going to pay me that much to, to fly around the world. Yeah, like, of course, like I'll have a crack. And I applied, I didn't get in the first time. But they came around again in six months and I managed to get through on that one. How was it? That was fun. Like it was it was an amazing experience. It really did shape me as a person. I think going over to Dubai at 25, I think I was still very much searching for who I was at that time. Um, and traveling the world, it, it gave me so many different options. Like I got to, I got to speak and work with and visit so many people and places around the world i looked at myself back in sydney and i was like oh i have this very small idea of what's important in my life at that time it was clubbing like i wanted to go clubbing i wanted to be around like my friends who were dj's i wanted to party i thought that was really really important and then as i started to travel the world i was like oh man like there's this all this other stuff that i've heard about that i'm now i'm i'm able to see firsthand it opened. I think it. It. I stopped. I stopped limiting the possibilities of, of who I could be, um, and I, it, it. It did. It, it changed me a lot. Like it. It, it changed my perspective on the world a little, quite a bit. I would say.
1: After that, you wound up back in Indonesia for a while, right? What What was that like? Yeah. What What drew you back to, you know, where your parents were from? Was it Was it part of you know that kind of exploration of yourself was it connecting up with your sister your stepsister what what drew you back to indonesia i was still lost
0: i didn't know who i was even after i left dubai like dubai was kind of like you can be anything you want dubai is a funny place because like there's a lot of people who go over there who are running away from something and it's where you can kind of invent yourself as totally something else and i witnessed that a lot and i probably got caught up in that a lot myself so when i left i came back to australia for a year and I'm like, all my friends have gone on and had families or gone on and like our, our friends group was totally different. And I didn't feel like I connected anymore with a lot of my old friends. I, I didn't feel like I had, I wasn't sure. I, I came back and I started delivering fruit because I, I went from being a flight attendant, living this like lavish glamorous life. And I came back and I started delivering fruit because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then, so I thought, you know what? I'm gonna move to Indonesia. I met, I met, I met a girl, fell in love. Um, and I thought, oh, Hey, like she was, she was an environmentalist and it it gave her what she was doing kind of gave me a sense of purpose. I was like, oh, okay, cool. I could, I could, I could do that. So I moved over there thinking, oh, there's this going to be this opportunity or like my life's going to change over there or I have an advantage because I speak English and I'm Indonesian and, and I moved over there and it wasn't easy. It was difficult. Like I had a whole new culture to learn even though i'm indonesian i've never lived there like before and the way they do things and the way like they move around things is very different to australia and what i was used to so that that was another massive learning experience for me it was it dispelling like expectations that i have of places and people
1: yeah it's one of those things that i've heard from so many friends who are i guess like the second generation of migrants you know like growing up here, not feeling feeling excluded, not feeling part of the culture, not quite knowing where you fit, and then going back to the homeland of your parents and feeling that same thing, you know, like in some ways, like for so many people that, you know, I've talked to on this podcast, but also just friends in general, that has, navigating that has unlocked this next step, which is like actually this kind of some somewhat of an epiphany where they sort of recognize they have this new part in the culture in a way like them they're unlocked to make their own way to fight to chart their own course was there anything like that for you in this experience because it sounds like it was it was a tough second round experience going back to indo but like you came back to sydney and seemed to get connected up with sydney romantics this fashion label that you came in on as marketing director. And that feels like the kickoff of so much that you've done since then. Is, is, is that characterization kind of close to the mark? Or what,
0: what would you say? I would say that Sydney Romantics was me trying to answer a question of who am I? Going through high school, going... Like after high school, I went to this hospitality college in Manly. It was... Uh, International College of Tourism and Hotel Management my parents paid like through the nose for that shit like like when I think of the money that my parents put into that it was nuts but anyway it it put me around these new kids that I'd never experienced before like these really wealthy kids from northern beaches and eastern suburbs and all these international students and it confused me like like, we're poor and well next to them I felt poor you know um and it confused me. And then I went to Emirates and I'm like, oh, I don't, I'm making good money, but I'm not on the, that money that people are on. And, and then I'm flying around the world and people are asking me, who are you? Like, where are you from? I'm from Australia. You don't look Australian. You don't sound Australian. Um, you, don't like, you don't like the Australians on TV. And then I go to Indonesia and they're like, you're not Indonesian. You're Australian. You eat bread. You don't eat rice. I'm like, what? who the fuck am I? And so I came here and I, I'm, I'm like, 30 years old by this stage and I still don't know who I am and so Sydney Romantics was when I think back at it it was an attempt to try to express like who we are as sydney ciders. like Jodia who, who thought of the idea and founded the brand he was designing for Insight 51, Subi and then he went on to design for Deus as well and through that experience, he came out confused about who he was as, as an Australian designer because like, he grew up in Mount Druitt and f- always felt like he had to explain to people or change who he was because he was in these, in these fashion circles. Um, and so we started that brand to try to, um, to, try to say, no, like, this is our definition of Sydney, the way we see it. And we knew that there were other people who felt like us uh, at that
1: time. You were the you were you know title was the marketing director of that business, mm-hmm. and yeah, that was a title that we did like I'd never been a marketing anything
0: anywhere, so like
1: <laughs> yeah, and i I love that because because obviously you hadn't done that before, but stepping into that space like that had a really clear brand proposition as a brand, you know, and I guess a lot of people think about branding as being a typeface or a logo or that kind of thing, but this um there was a sort of a sense of like portraying like what the community is, like, you know, a really sort of optimistic, you know, there was an optimism that was shot through the brand, but like a sense of connection. And that's a really sophisticated take on marketing. How, how did you come to that? Was that I mean, in some ways I love it when people don't go through the established channels Mm. because they don't know all of the rules that the people who went through the channels know. And so they make things up and they they do things in their own way, which is exactly what we need. Like, how did you get to that place? Yeah, I would agree with you in that I hated
0: rules and I've come to love them now. But at that time I was just, I, I didn't understand why there were so many rules in place and why I had to like, why I couldn't just discover things and, and move into things as I, as I felt. When I was living, when I was living in Indonesia, a, a friend of mine, his name's Razi, he, he used to live in Sydney, but he, um, he started a, a dating app in Indonesia that it, it was culturally sensitive. It was like, you're in a Muslim country, what's a dating app look like in a Muslim country? And what he came to discover is he created a way for people to match according to their values. And when when their values aligned, then it would open up a conversation and say, oh, your values align, now you can talk. And he put me on to um, a guy named Seth Godin and Simon Sinek. Uh, Simon Sinek uh, has this great um, TED Talk called How Great Leaders Inspire Action. And Seth Godin was, and probably still is one of the best marketing um, minds at that time. And a lot of what they were talking about was being your most authentic self really understanding who you are at the core and and using that as your underlying value proposition like that 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 is who you are that that's who you you're talking to other people very similar to you at the same time I read a book called a new earth uh, by um, Eckhart Tolle the book the book talks largely and mostly about your ego and and how this other personality within you dictates your behavior, your thinking, and how you view yourself and what you think other people think of you. And once I started to understand how my ego, how my ego um, influenced my behavior, how it, um, how it fed on my fears and insecurity, and then I matched that with the things I was learning in Indonesia, what Razi was teaching me about... Um, about branding and marketing, what I was learning through another friend of mine, Sharika, who put me on to storytelling, like uh, the hero's journey. I started to connect all these dots um, and it started to make sense to me why culture was so important to me, like why traveling the world was so important. I started to see that culture is a set of values that we agree on. It's the way that we treat each other. We We connect with each other according to the, the culture either we grow, grow up in or that we subscribe to. Like I, I really believe in these sets of values and principles and I'm going to look for other people who believe the same thing as me. That was true in every sort of culture I looked at whether it was Indonesian culture whether it was like the culture that I saw here in Australia or whether it was hip-hop culture. I started to see, oh, hey, like, what is hip hop culture? The, the, the principles of hip culture, hip hop culture, peace, love, unity, having fun. And they're expressed in these other ways of breakdancing, dancing, emceeing, graffiti, um, beatboxing. And I started to draw the parallels and saying like, oh, hey, like hip hop culture is just like my, my traditional culture. There's a way to dress and a style in which we present ourselves. There's a, a way we talk, a language that we use. There's a way that we dance. And then it started to make marketing and branding started to make sense to me. It was like, here's how we talk to our audience who are similar to us and who share the same values as us. Uh, okay, now I understand what a brand is. A brand is something that has a set of rules, a set of values, and it's meant to attract people like us. But I started to realize I was trying to impress all these people and mean something to all these people who, who didn't share the same values as me. And that's why I kept feel, 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 I, I kept feel like I was chasing something that was unattainable. I was like, why do I care so much about these people who have no interest or no connection to me? Why don't I just look for the people who are like me, who feel like me, and talk directly to them?
1: Around that time, there was this, you know, I guess it's probably been happening time immemorial, but it really felt there was this visible movement of people, you know, young people in the West who were... You know, reevaluating, like like you've just been saying, reevaluating the culture they were born into, but through the lens of the music they were into, like hip hop particularly and R and B, and and club culture as well, and finding new ways of presenting themselves, talking about each other, and in, in a way, so that is so much the seeds of just this incredible kind of inversion of the culture in Sydney that we're seeing the fruits of now. Yeah, what what was your perspective on on that? I think I started, I started to understand why hip hop,
0: why it meant so much to me and why I, I gravitated to the music, the lyrics, the way of dressing. I started to understand like why as young kids, we gravitated to the same clubs, to these places. Cause we, we needed to feel like we belonged to something important and hip hop, even though it was from you know, halfway across the world, we could identify somehow with that need. that need to belong, to have, to feel something really cool to be connected to. And so around that time, I started to understand hip hop at a deeper level. I, I started to understand what the values were meant to help us achieve. Like hip hop is this thing that you, you, you literally bang on a table to create a beat and you use your voice, right? It's starting, it's, it's being able to do something beautiful from nothing. And then I started to understand, oh, what, what makes that special? Oh, it's style, it's flavor, it's, it's, the, it's the style and energy you put into it that makes it uniquely you. And then so I started to really appreciate, I started to appreciate like all these different talents that were, that were coming out of the West and I started to understand why they were important. But then it made me sort of even more determined to, to help them see it too. Like that, they were important, that there's something, there is something there, that there's there's something that's always been there. It's been there since I was a kid, but we'd never been able to collect it and define it and, um, I guess, define its value. Like, what was this actually
1: going to contribute to society? How did you wind up working with Sampa?
0: Uh, So, Jodia, who was running Romantics um, with me, uh, was a really good friend of. He grew up with a guy named Jeroll and Jeroll had a friend named um, had had a friend named uh, was it Ross? Now I'm getting this. I'm butchering his name. But yeah, they they were they had a collective uh, called The Goods, and they ran a studio in Castle Ray Street. Um, oh, what was the name of the studio? I can't, I can't I can't remember. And they were at an open mic night, and met Sampa at an open mic night, and invited invited her to the studio. And when we heard her on the mic for the first time, like she she was doing, like she was singing, she was rapping. I was like, man, this this girl is phenomenal. Like she just had this presence about her, like her voice was amazing. But she also had this, like, she had this confidence on the microphone that was so different to her personality in, in real life. Um, we're just drawn to her. She just had this magnetic energy. And yeah, we just wanted to be a part of it. I, we just wanted to be around it.
1: What was it like? What, what, how did you find a way to be, be around it, to be part of that?
0: So we were just at the studio and we'd, we'd go to the studio every week. It was just a cool place to be, like, you know, sitting in this. It was, oh, sorry, it was Rex Studios. And it was just this, the old EMI studio. And it was just beautiful to be in. It just had this, this air of history of, about it. Like someone had said that Prince had recorded in there, that Elton John had recorded in there. So, like, we just loved being around people who were making music. So we'd rock up every week and Sample would come. And we just started to develop this, this relationship And at that time I was, you know, becoming much more aware of myself and Sampa kept saying that she wasn't sure if she was going to do music because her parents didn't send her to Australia for that. They sent her to study like sound engineering and stuff. And we just kept telling her like, no, 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 like you've got to do it. We've got to do it. Look, we'll back you. Like we'll, you know, we'll, we'll do your creative direction. We'll help you wherever you need. And it wasn't, there wasn't a solid plan. It was just like, let's just do something. It was just like, you know, kind of undirected energy
1: at that time it's amazing to see just what a titan she's become and i guess there's this intersection with just this rise of african culture Afrobeats, mm. um that is just central to the music culture in a way that it should have been for a long time but mm. it's been amazing to see it really um transcend uh where it was and samp has been right in the center of that Around this time, you did this project um, called Tracks um, mm-hmm. with FBI, with, you know, Music New South Wales, Blacktown Arts, Elephant Tracks, that was really about kind of connecting up with young talent in the West. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? Like through Sampa, I started to
0: realise when she took off, it took off very fast and I was very inexperienced. Um, and I, I stepped in as a sort of interim manager, maybe more like a tour manager because uh, she was getting asked to do certain projects that required her to travel. So I'd just go along with her and um, we had a great relationship. But like I was getting hit up by like, Richard Kingsmill asking me for like press kits and stuff. And I'm like, what the hell is a press kit? I have no idea how to put that stuff together. Um, and so I realized that I was not prepared for, for an artist of her caliber and how quickly she was growing. So I took a step back and I met... Um, through one of our tours I met I met Ziggy uh, from the area now. And he was working with Manu, B they had this studio in Alexandria, Solo was there, Matt Black, Amphorose, Dopamine, like a lot of the a lot of the early guys at that time who were sort of leading the charge and, and pioneering a sound that was new to Australia. At that studio, I, I remember meeting Leroy for the first time. And so I jumped on and just wanted to help Ziggy with mentoring Leroy, just being around it. Like I, I, And through that experience, I started to slowly learn the music business um, because of stuff that was happening around Manu and stuff that was happening around Leroy. And I started to, yeah, learn the ins and outs of how this music industry worked. At the same time, I'm the type to just jump in and figure it out as I go. Like being a flight attendant, never been a flight attendant before, just jump in, like, I'll, I'll figure it out. Like that's always been my motto. I'll just figure it out as I go. And so, yeah, like being around Leroy and having done the Sampa thing, a, a close friend of mine, Mike Hu, who ran a party called Love Bombs at that time and was working with FBI Radio. He's like, oh, we want to do some stuff with, like, you know, Western Sydney. And he introduced me to, he brought me in and introduced me to, um, to Claire Holland, to Nikki Brogan. Uh, and they were saying, hey, we want to do something for Western Sydney. Um, and the idea track for tracks came around needing to break down the walls between Western Sydney creatives and, the, and music industri- industry professionals.
1: You know, that's been really part of a refiguring of what FBI does. You know, the sound of FBI has changed a lot since then. You know, the snack pack guys and, you know, like really different kind of sound on that station but also that that burst of talent from the area that came through that program. Mm. At that time, I guess you've mentioned Leroy, you know, obviously he's a global superstar now. Um, you also started to work with Becca Hatch and with One4 around that time. Yeah, You know, like you're stepping into this situation where you're becoming a music manager, you're, you're le- an artist manager, you're learning the business as you go. How, how, how rough was it? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I didn't really want to become a music manager, to be honest. I found it hard to manage myself. Like, I was a, uh, through and through, I was a creative, but I didn't know, like, I didn't have a particular skill set. Like, I wasn't a graphic designer. I didn't know how to produce music, but I thought very creatively. Like, and it's not until maybe a few years ago that I thought, like, I'm a strategist. Like, I'm a creative problem solver, uh, and my, my tool is people like I'm good at connecting people together and figuring out who's going to have chemistry because for most of my life I was trying to do that for myself. I was trying to match my matchmake myself to the right people um that could either see my talent or help me become a better version of myself. It was rough learning learning to become a manager was I had to I had to become comfortable with failure and using failure as a tool to learn um which was Probably
1: against everything that I'd been taught. Tell me about that. Tell me about some of those failures you had to get, get comfortable with. A lot of people would be listening to this thinking this guy's, you know, managing one like you know, the biggest hip hop group that Australia's ever produced. Failure to manage my time properly, like was a big one.
0: That led to like missing opportunities because I didn't answer an email, because I didn't pick up a call, because I wasn't on time for a meeting. Like I remember like working at FBI and Claire, bless her, like she was so patient with me. I'd rock up half an hour late or 15 minutes late. And I, I, I'm, I'm in my thirties. Like I've been a flight attendant. I should know better than this, but it was still this like really bad habit that I had. Failure to read a contract, like the fine print in a contract that led to like, <laughs> I, remember, I remember going to a show one time with, with Becca and I didn't read the contract properly. And it said, no backline is supplied. And so we rocked up and we didn't have turntables. We didn't have anything. And I was like, oh, holy crap. Like, yeah, I messed up. I messed up this one. But yeah, I think where there is no, like like you said, like there is no formal way to learn to be a manager. It's one of those things you, you kind of have to learn on the fly. Um, it probably would have helped if I had joined a management company or I had, you know, a mentor at that time. But even me, I, I was kind of stubborn. I was like, "No, no, no! I'll figure this out on my own. I'll do it on my own." Like, uh, you know, it just happened faster if I if I take care of it on my own. And partially that, that that comes from being an only child. It comes from parents who who worked a lot of hours and wasn't weren't there necessarily to hold my hand and teach me through things. Like, I just figured I, I learned from an early age that I had to figure things out on my own very quickly.
1: You know, this year you were awarded. Um, you know, sort of a prestigious prize by the Association of Artist Managers. So you've clearly learnt, you know, a thing or two in that time. Mm. What do you know now that you wish you'd known back then? What, like, what, what, what does it take to be a great artist manager? I mean, in in the style
0: that I do it, I think leaders, leaders. There, there's there's a there's a great analogy that was like it was on it was like a it was something that was I saw on Instagram. It, was, it showed a, a pack of wolves moving, like walking through the snow and it said like uh, at the front were, the young, were, the, were the, the, young, the young wolves in the middle were the most vulnerable and the leader was led from the back and it made sure that everyone was okay it put itself last um, it made sure that everyone ahead of them was, was taken care of, right, and was safe the most vulnerable ones are the ones that I get the most attention, and then there's something that Gary V said about great leadership. In that, a leader is in service of of their team. It's their their responsibility is to make everyone around them better, um, and to surround themselves with other experts that can that can um, help the team grow or to help them grow. That's probably where the service industry stuff really helped me a lot because I was I grew up in the service of others, but I learned that first from my parents, and that I think has what's helped me most as a manager is that I always believed that my role was to be in service of them and to help them see their potential and grow their confidence. And I think my own confidence came from making the mistakes and seeing that it wasn't the end of the world, that there was something that you could learn from it and that you weren't. Once I stopped caring so much about what other people thought of the mistakes and focused more on what was the information that I got from the mistake and how do I rectify and then improve on what I've learned. Then I started to like really get the the hang of being a manager. I was like, oh, this is a game of trial and error. There is no formula per se or like, you know, process because each artist is different and their needs are different and you, you kind of need to figure that out first.
1: And it's such a fluid environment and context that you're working in as a manager with so many different shifting, you know, allegiances and, you know, relationships.
0: Yeah, it changes so quickly. So, like, getting stuck on one thing might be to your detriment. You've got to kind of – you've got to stay open-minded. And, again, going back to travelling and, and being in hospitality, you've got to be adaptable. That was the biggest thing. You've got to adapt to your environment.
1: There's really no other Australian hip-hop group that I can think of that's had the same sort of earth-shaking cultural impact that 1-4 that one for has You know, it's been like a a bomb going off in the culture in some ways. I guess partially because of that kind of NWA treatment that the police have given them. But also, you know, you can't deny just the sheer energy that comes through in the music. But I want you to think back to when you first came across them, when you first were introduced to to the guys in the band, but also to the music um, they were making. What was your first reaction to it? These look like my friends in high school. When I was in high school... I had I
0: had these islander friends uh, John Keho he was like our hero he was tongan he had long hair looked like like he he like he looked like a superhero like he, he was good at sports at you know, like at 14 years old he was playing first grade rugby league like they were tough boys and weird, like and as a boy you look at them and you go ah oh, like I want to be like them they were tough you know and I made friends with these guys and they took care of me and like as I as i grew with them in high school i I could see this this um this real lovingness and uh, and like like closeness that islander people had that reminded me of my family in indonesia like it reminded me of island culture back in indonesia and when when i saw one four i was like oh these remind me of my high school friends like i I felt kind of nostalgic Uh, but when i when i heard the music i was like oh this is exciting this feels this feels like the the rap that i grew up on like that i heard from like from america but it sounds like western sydney it sounds like our people the way they dress the way they like the way they express themselves and so i was like yeah i was really drawn to like i mean like there's there's one thing to be good rappers there's one thing to be good rappers and do it stylishly like with flavor like with this coolness about it and that was the first time i'd seen a group that I felt like, oh, you've, you've got all the the bits, the, the, the details, the details
1: are there. You, uh, your first meeting with them, you walked in an hour late, right? Yeah. To Street University. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What was that like? What was that, what
0: was that meeting like? The first thing that they, they told me when I walked in was we thought you weren't going to come. And uh, the crazy thing that I remember is when I looked in their eyes, they were so used to being disappointed to people telling them that they were going to do something And then it wasn't going to happen. And that really sat with me. Like, I was like, oh shit. Like, they're really used to being given up on. Um, And I promised myself at that moment that if I do work with these guys, like they would never feel that way again from me. But yeah, meeting them, like, yeah, it was kind of, it it was, yeah, it was cool. Like, they they were really welcoming. And I just felt like I was talking to like my old friend's kids.
1: (laughs) They came, you know, came to that meeting with songs that were already, you know, blowing up, yeah, at a level that, you know, like most Australian artists aren't aren't reaching. I and mean, they were hitting hundred thousand views on on songs on online, right? Yeah. What you know, when I think about, you know, for some music managers, they come in uh, and their job is to take like a raw talent and give it that kind of audience. But when I think about you and one 4 i I'm thinking about like a runaway freight train that you're just like, you know, it's jumping the tracks from track to track. You're just like, which is the right track and how do I keep it on that? How, is, that, is, that the, is that the feeling that you've had as a, a manager? Because things moved incredibly fast from that moment when you first met them, right?
0: Yeah, it, it, it did move very fast. Um, when, I, when, I, when I saw them, or when I saw what they were doing online and I read through the comments, the first thing that, that, that I thought of was, this is a brand. There is a brand of music. There's a brand that they have. There is a reputation that they have. And I read through the comments, the kids were talking about street activity, what was happening in the streets. I'm like, ah, oh, this is it. Like we talk about rap, rap is the, the news network of the streets. It's the CNN of the streets. And I was like, this is what's happening. This is what they're saying, what they're expressing is what is going on in the streets and this is the forum where like this is like a subreddit like where people talk about what's happening and i was like this is how music is changing you know it, it can't be it's not just about oh this is a great song no this has a song with a with the context with the story behind it and that's what makes it really important um they were getting a hundred thousand views on youtube and and like even more on facebook not, and not all the comments were supportive comments. A lot, of, like, a lot of comments were mocking them were making fun of them. But I'm like, ah, oh, but there's dialogue. People care, right? It's like the opposite of love isn't hate. It's indifference, right? A lot of artists, people are kind of indifferent to it. It's like, all right, yeah, cool, but whatever. Like, oh. I'd much prefer to have a strong feeling to something than yeah. not feel anything. Yeah. yeah, 100%. So it was like, we love them or we hate them. And I'm like, this is it. Like you, it's the same conversations that happened at the time between Drake fans and Kendrick fans. Like you were, you were supportive of one or the other. And I thought, ah, oh, this is where it gets really interesting. What happened next? Uh, I introduced them to Howe because I felt like- From coolism. Yeah, from coolism and Triple J. Howe, me and Howard had met through Sydney Romantics. he you know, he'd came out and asked us to do some, some work for him. Um, And over that time, I got to know him. We we had like a lot of common friends and I had a a, a big respect for how being the first, first person to win a hip hop aria, first of all, but second of all, he was like, he was an Islander and he wasn't from Sydney. Um, There was no, everything that he'd achieved, I was like, oh, you're a real pioneer in our space. But uh, apart from that, just a really cool guy, like just a really, really big hearted person who, again, a true leader. He put everyone before himself. And I said to How, I was like, you have to guide this. You have to be the person who connects with them because these are your people. Like, you know, you're you're the leader of this and not just of hip hop culture, but uh, like Islander voices in Australia. And so he connected with them and brought them into his studio um, to help them work on his spare time. Um, And he
1: had a profound impact on them. They must have, it must have been so weird for them. Like they'd been recording in straight university. It's a pretty basic studio set up, right? Mm. Like i very DIY mm. to suddenly winding up in the Sony studios in the city. I mean, did they take, you know, did they land and just immediately latch onto it? I
0: think first comes respect. They respected how. Yeah. There was a, and this is cultural too. They respected him as a elder as someone who was accomplished, who had clearly accomplished something in the industry. Um, and he was showing faith in them. He didn't have to. And so I think that they really expected and appreciated that from him. There was a high level of appreciation for how and what he was doing for them. Even though they're, they're, like, you know, they're mixed up in all these other stuff, they, they really wanted to make sure that they didn't let him down.
1: Does that come with a lot of pressure in the studio?
0: I'm sure it does. Not wanting to let people down? Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, One four is so driven by that, not wanting to let anyone down. Like when you think of what we went through, what drives you? Is it money? Is it fame? Like those things are very short-lived, right? So it's got to be some some higher value,
1: some higher principle. And for them, it's it's that. It's like not wanting to let people down. How does that translate to coming up with creative projects though? Like if you're feeling that pressure, not wanting to let people down – do you feel comfortable taking risks? Do you feel comfortable like doing that kind of experimentation that you need to do to find that creative you know, spark?
0: No, I think that's something that we still work through all the time. Like sometimes like, you just let yourself get lost in the, in the feeling, you just let out whatever's inside. And I think those, those early songs that we had, they really didn't care. They, they just let, put everything down that they felt was on their mind at the time, right? But as they started to acquire a lot more uh, fame and notoriety and then their families started to like be caught up in the in the crossfire, then they started to think, oh shit, like things that I, I'm saying and doing have a direct impact on my family. I've got to be careful. I've got to, you know, really... Yeah, there is a conflict there. There definitely is a conflict. Like, What was your role in there? Uh, during the early times, it... it I didn't say much. I let, I let How do all the talking because he was the, he was the one with the experience. But as, as I got more involved, my approach was to let them make the mistakes, let them feel what the mistakes were like and then give them the advice that I thought was necessary for them to fix it on their own. Not necessarily be the one to fix the things, but to let them figure it out. It wasn't to tell them what to do, it was to help them think. Um... You can't tell them what to do, first of all, right? So it's more to, hey, you're capable of thinking your way through this. Make the right decision. If you make a mistake, it's okay. And I think that kind of is maybe different to what they were used to because the church doesn't tell you that. The police don't tell you that. Often teachers don't tell you that. They're like, no, if you make a mistake, it's going to be final and it's going to leave a mark and stain on you forever and you're forever going to live in damnation, (laughs) But my approach was to say, "No, make the mistake. It's okay. I understand."
1: The new Netflix doco has come out this week. Mm. Uh, it's, I mean, it's incredible, and congrats to you and and everyone involved in it. But if people hadn't been aware of the run-ins of the band with police, I mean, it's it's absolutely the central, you know, um, story of the of the documentary. You know, in 2019, YP, Selly, and Lex were jailed for this violent incident mm. in a in a venue in mm-hmm. Rudy Hill. Mm. Um, you know, JMs had been in jail and was just coming out, and so much of this music is centered on on that violence. You know, like not just that in a particular case, but you know, bashings, murders. Um, and of course, you know, police are, you know, lined up against it. So is tabloid media, but there is also voices from the community who are, you know, who are concerned by it. You know, this sort of sense that the music glorifies violence, that it incites violence. Even, you know, you definitely see that all the way through the doco from the police saying that this is mm. what the music is doing. Mm. Do they have a point? the The violence, the violence that
0: you see or hear about in these songs, it's not them in. in Looking to incite violence within the general public, it's it's directed. I think it's directed at specific people or incidences that they had a problem with at that time. If I'm being completely honest, it's a it is a problem. Like it, there is a problem there, but but is the problem the songs and the artists, or is is it is, it, is the is that a symptom, or is it the cause? Right. Um, I, I would say it's a symptom of a much bigger problem. A, a lot of people might look at the group and say, oh, there's just a bunch of thugs there, a bunch of, you know, whatever. But if you've been to a jail or if you've had someone go to jail who gets caught up in this kind of stuff and then you start to understand what actually happens in jail and what people go through when when they're in jail, you might start to understand the trauma that people experience when they're in there from a very early age and then you start to wonder why this is allowed to continue to happen like the police and the, and the justice system and authorities well know what goes on inside jail and often they're a part of it
1: you know it was heartbreaking in in the documentary hearing one of the guys say that they'd all been lined up as a class when they were kids and told that it was inevitable that they were going to go to jail you know, yeah. And you know, when you you know, like right at the start you were talking about your teacher who said that you could be leadership material and you've got that expectation that's set for you. You mm. can be leadership material and you see how much of an influence that has on your career. And when you're told you're gonna go to jail, what does that do to you?
0: It creates fear. So much of what we're so much of what we're taught as young kids, the way we're disciplined, the way we're um the way we're taught to stay in line is built on fear. Again, I'm going back to this book, A New Earth. Do this, because if you don't do this, like you're not going to be able to get a job. Or you're not going to be successful in life. Choose this career, because if you don't do that, you're going to be broken, poor for the rest of your life. Don't follow your passion. Like Be safe. Um, or if you make a mistake, if you go to, if you go to jail, like for, there'll forever be a stain on your name. And so... A lot of these young guys, they're operating out of fear, but they're not operating
1: out of hope. It seems so obvious that they are finding creative self expression. You know, they're not choosing a life of crime. They're not, you know, they're not working the factory, which is the other option. They are, you know, charting this course that is totally unique. And also, like, you know, Mm. these, these guys are global superstars despite all of that. And and we're punishing them, we're, you know, treating them punitively. You know, when, when you were going through all of this, it must have felt immensely frustrating as well. You know, you're going through this, you're on the cusp of this huge stardom, huge potential stardom. And three of the guys wind up in jail, you know, shows are being shut down constantly you know i've had conversations with some of sydney's biggest venues who've told me directly of the experiences that they've had you know with police around one four how do you yeah how do you keep your head up through all of that how do you keep positive how do you keep the focus on moving forward you know what it's
0: just one foot in front of the
1: other, we'll figure it out. There's always a solution. There's always a
0: solution. Just be patient enough to find the solution. You're going to hit roadblocks. You're going to fall over. You're going to make mistakes. But it, it's perseverance, like, and your willingness to go find the answers. And at first, I thought it was myself, but then as I opened up to taking advice from more people, as I found people like who are who who showed the same um, the people who showed like Claire and and Mike and like who showed the same um, belief in me, I think, yeah, like, and, and the group, like the, you know, the group trusting me to steer the ship, even that they're like, they were so paranoid about people taking stuff off them or leading us down the wrong road.
1: That, that's what I think that really pushed, pushed me through. I love seeing um the rise in musical ambition from the band. You you know, of course you've got that just brutal energy of songs like Shanks and Shiv, mm. but you've got that step up with, you know, the you know, the the melancholy of Welcome to Jail mm. and that kind of insight, deep insight and um and songs like Heartless, which you see this kind of growth in the band's potential. You know, this DOCO that's out on Netflix is undeniably going to lift the the group to another level of kind of you know fame and household name level awareness not just here but globally and in circles that are outside the hip-hop world in in a way that they just wouldn't have been open to in the past what's next for this group and what's next for you as well man well like you know on a on a professional front for the group
0: they've, they've got to make an album like we're in the process of um working on an album that we need to deliver but the world is theirs like they 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 can really do whatever they set their mind to you know like from the stuff that they've had to overcome it's really what you put your mind to and what you're willing to to work towards like for each of them yeah like the the most immediate thing is an album but beyond that why not become if they if they want to get into acting become acting but if you want to turn one four into a a media company that shares like Polynesian stories. That's a possibility. If you want to start a label, also a possibility, like all those options are in front of them. And, you know, it's up to them to decide where they want to take things. I've always, I've always seen myself as, I still see my part. My role is within this city. I still, I, I still think Sydney has so much more to offer. And I see how Sydney's, changing and I I still want to be part of that I I really want to be part of that change I'm not sure what that role is yet but I don't know I I still think I have so much to contribute to this city moving forward and how um, this city brands itself globally the stories that we tell about our people I, I think that for a long time in in the city of Sydney we've we've shown off the natural environment Right. We show off our beaches, we show off our like our harbour bridge and our opera house and but rarely do we talk about how creative and how innovative our people are and what how interesting they are. Right. And I think that um young people today and they, they really want to show that hey, we we are up there with the best. You know, we've we've got amazing talent and we want to contribute to how this how this city is how this city is marketed
1: and put on display to the rest of the world, we wanna have a say. Thank you so much for this conversation. Before I wrap up, I wanna give you three quick questions. Mm-hmm. First one, what is keeping you up at night right now?
0: Just that thing that I said right now, we have an opportunity to shape our city and, and, and change the narrative of who is the new Australian person, who is who are the new Australian young people and uh, I really believe that there is um, an opportunity to to change that narrative into something way more exciting.
1: Who else should I be talking to?
0: Uh, There's a young kid from Mount Druitt, from Bidwell, who's 21 years old, who's traveling the world currently as Post Malone's photographer and videographer, a kid named Jason Denison. Uh, And what he's achieved at such a young age, and whenever I speak to him and uh, what his view of the world is and how it's changing, it really inspires me. And I think that, yeah, he's going to be um, someone really great
1: to watch in this city. I'm going to need a hookup to, uh, to, to yeah. get him in when he's in Sydney next time. Something. Last question. Um, what gives you hope? One four. Love that. Um, Ricky, it's been so great to have you on this podcast today. Um, if people want to find out about your work, where do you send them? You know, is it Spotify to listen to things is it a website where where would you send them i mean just look up
0: one floor on the internet you know across the articles that have been written uh, the, the interviews that they've done um i poured my heart and soul and everything that i am into that into that project and into those into those men um and i'm proud to I, i'm proud to sit here and say that i'm proud of who they are and the, the men that they've become um And I think you'll see my work through them.
1: Yeah, you've got to watch that Netflix doco as well. That's just out this week and it is really strong. Um, This was produced and hosted by me, Matt Levinson. If you haven't heard uh, the previous uh, episodes in the series, recommend diving back in um, some choice examples. Maybe Kenny Sabir, uh, founder of the founder of Elephant Tracks and The Herd, um, a tech leader now, you know, man of many talents. Also, Kayleen Milner, who is in the band Loose Fit, also has a side hustle or a major kind of next hustle with Wawa, you know, making amazing knitwear. Some really amazing interviews worth digging back into. If you know someone who would be into listening to this podcast, please let them know about it that's the best way that people find out about a podcast like this thank you so much for listening i'm matt levinson i might have a story for you